I suggest to you that what we're going to find out today is that our life as a living sacrifice, which is what this passage is about, being a living sacrifice, is all about showing that God's will is good, pleasing, and perfect. But again, let's uncover and unpack a little bit what his will is and then how it is that we might be able to show that it's good, pleasing, and perfect. All right, so Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Okay, since we only have two sentences, let's just stop right there, unpack it a bit, and then we'll grab the second one and do the same. So what, what Paul says here is he begins his, his, his passage here with, therefore I urge you, I urge you in view of God's mercy. And what are the mercy, in fact the Greek it's plural, in view of God's mercies, what are the mercies that God has bestowed on his people, and specifically the ones that Paul has highlighted in this letter to the Roman church? Well, could, could anyone, anyone want to take a stab at any of those mercies? See, we'll do a little, little quiz for the last few months, see who's been paying attention. It's probably really more obvious than you think, like anyone. What's one of God's mercies? Salvation. That's what the book of Romans starts off talking about. That uh, salvation is for those who have faith in God, and it comes by grace. So there's this, this mercy of God saving people who don't deserve to be saved. Saving sinners. Forgiving their sins, that's a mercy of God. That God forgives their sins. Not because of what they've done, but because of what Jesus has done for them. So sending Jesus is one of God's mercies. Uh, Jesus was sent, and he, he, he died upon a cross. We sang about it today, and he rose up from the grave. And we read in Romans 6 that when he died, that we died with him. And then when he rose to life, that we rose to life with him through our baptism. We see that God sent Jesus to be an atoning sacrifice, one who takes away our sins. Um, what's another element? Do you guys remember one of the other? Like, there's some conflict in the book of Romans. Do you remember that? Do you remember who it's between? Jews and Gentiles. So it's a mercy that God receives the Gentiles by faith, those who were not a part of Israel, those who did not have the temple, those who did not have the law. God receives them by grace. And not only so, we read in chapter 11 that God intends to, to restore his people Israel, even though they have rejected Jesus. And so even though God's people were disobedient, he still intends to bring them back and to save them in the end. Uh, he gives us the gift of sonship. We read about uh, that gift, how, how God has received us as sons uh, and that he has drawn us into this deep, intimate relationship. We see in Romans that God... Um, takes our pain and turns it into a blessing. Right? I just quoted the passage a second ago. All things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. That verse comes after a whole long section on suffering and pain and hardship. And that if we endure the sufferings of Christ, then we will also receive the blessings of Christ. That God is turning our hardship. He's turning our pain. He's turning our failures into blessings. God is in the process of doing that. And then we also read another one of God's mercies, that he makes us conquerors, more than conquerors, right? We can overcome. 
We can overcome our sin. We can overcome the world. We can overcome persecution. We can overcome uh, the limits of our physical bodies. God is in the process of raising us up and, in a sense, uh, different from Christ but very similar, glorifying us the way he glorified Jesus after his death by the resurrection that we have died with Christ and we are raised again into glory with Christ. These are the mercies of God. So Paul says, I urge you in view of these mercies. Now, do you guys know Paul is an apostle, right? And the apostles were the early leaders of the church. And the apostles have a lot of authority. And Paul talks about his authority in other books of the Bible. But what Paul consistently does is that he doesn't exercise his authority to command. He uses his authority to invite and to encourage and even challenge. Because if God receives sinners by grace, then Paul will lead the church by grace. So Paul is here modeling already the thing that he's about to call all of us to do as recipients of the mercy of God. So he says, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. I think I have a picture here. Yes, this, this, is a, this is a picture of an altar in Israel, but not in Jerusalem. So you guys may know that in the temple, there, were these, there is an altar, and what you would do with the altar is you would take an animal, you'd cut it up, you'd place it on the altar, and you would burn it. So there'd be a fire on this altar. And so this is actually one of the altars in Israel that was recovered or discovered. It's still there. It was uh, what we might call uh, an unauthorized altar because God had certain places where you could offer sacrifices and other places you couldn't. But this was kind of an illicit altar, an altar that shouldn't have been there. But it's the only picture of a Jewish altar I could find because the one from the temple is not there, right? So uh, this is what an altar may have looked like. And so to be a living sacrifice would be literally to place yourself, this is that same altar, to place yourself on the altar. But you don't place yourself on the altar the way you'd place an animal sacrifice on the altar um, because Paul makes it clear that you're not, you're not a sacrifice that's dead. You're a sacrifice that's alive, a living sacrifice. And what that tells us very, very simply is that uh, this isn't a once-and-done thing, but this is an ongoing reality, an ongoing occurrence where we, though we live, we place ourselves on the altar. And why, why do you place an animal on the altar? Do you know? You know, there's a couple of aspects to it. One is the, the animal's taking your place. You deserve to die for your sin, but the animal dies in your stead. But the other reason that you put the animal on the altar is that you, you literally, you put it on there, it burns, and as it burns, the smoke rises up to heaven. It's like that's the way you physically give the animal to God. That's the way that you set the animal apart for God. It's for his worship. It's for his service, for whatever he wants to do with it. And, and there's even passages in the scripture, God obviously is a spirit. He doesn't have nostrils, but it says that God smells the, the smoke from the altar. He smells the sacrifices, and they're pleasing to him, a pleasing aroma. And, you know, it's kind of like, you know, when you're walking down and maybe taking a walk in your neighborhood, and all of a sudden, someone's having a barbecue, right? 
That's the smell. It's the meat, you know, being cooked. And literally, the priests, once the smell goes up and the, the smoke goes up, the priests would take the meat and they would eat it. They're literally having a barbecue. But by putting it on the altar, you're signifying that this animal is for the Lord. And so when we put ourselves on the altar, we're signifying that we are for the Lord. And this is what Paul says. He says, to be a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And holy, we often think of holy as something like righteousness, right? Moral purity, righteous living, doing the right thing, that's holiness. But that's not actually what the word holy means. The word holy means to be set apart, to be separated for the purpose of a God. So in fact, in the scripture, you know, the way it's translated, we often don't see it, but this word holy is used to refer in the Bible to prostitutes who work in a shrine for some of the other gods of the nations. And they're holy not because they're righteous. They're holy because they're set apart for the deity. They're set apart for their God. So it doesn't say anything about your character to be holy except that the one who's holy should be like the one they serve. And that's where that moral element comes in for us is because we know that God is morally pure. We know that God is righteous. So if we're holy and set apart for the Lord's service and His worship, then we need to be like Him. And that's where we get that moral component to the word holiness. In fact, if you think about that word and the way it's used in the Bible, there are, uh, do you remember the story of Moses? He's out in the wilderness and uh, there's that bush and, and it, it's on fire there. It doesn't burn up. And Moses hears the voice of God and he says, Moses, take off your sandals for you're standing on holy ground. Is that ground, like, that ground doesn't gossip? That ground is, you know, not sexually active outside of marriage. That ground, you know, doesn't, doesn't use bad words. No, no. It's that that ground is set apart for God's purpose and God's use. And the holy garments, the same way. And, the, you know, the priests, the priests can't go into the temple in their regular clothes. They take those clothes off and put on the holy clothes, and then they can go into the temple. It's not that those clothes are cleaner. It's those clothes are set apart for God. There's holy dishes. Um... You can, have holy, you can have holy furniture. In the New Testament, it talks about baptizing your couch. Isn't that weird? So any, anything that you set apart for God's service is holy. But if you set something apart for God's service, it has to be like the thing it's there to serve. Um, there is this sense of whatever you worship, you become like. And you can only worship something well when you are like it. So if you have a God that kills babies, then you sacrifice your children. Right? But if you have a God who's merciful and kind and loving, then you need to be merciful, kind, and loving in order to be holy for that God. Uh, in fact, I wanna, I'm going to turn to Psalm 115. I want to read this to you. You don't have to turn there right now. It's super quick. Um, it says this it's talking about the nations it says their idols are silver and gold made by human hands they have mouths but they cannot speak they have eyes but they cannot see 
They have ears, but they cannot hear, and they have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel, feet, but they cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats, right? Because these are just idols. They're just stone and wood. They're not real gods, right? So it says they can't do anything. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. If you trust in one of those idols, then you'll become, in a sense, mute. You'll become where you see things, but you can't really see. You hear things, but you can't really hear. You know, there's this idea that you become like the thing you worship. And in the same way, when sacrifices were made to the God of the Old Testament, what were the requirements? It had to be a lamb without blemish. It had to be a a ram with no injuries. It had to be a single color on its coat. Why? Because God is without blemish. Because God is pure. And when you, when you say pure, you mean no mixturing, no mixture of anything. So that's why even the color of the, the hair needed to be one color. It could be all black or all white, but it couldn't be black and white, right? And so you had to have these special requirements because you needed to show the Lord that you understood his character by offering a certain type of sacrifice that illustrated his character. The priest's clothing couldn't be made with two types of clothes. I mean... The priest's clothing couldn't be made with two types of fabric. You can't mix the fabrics because it had to be pure because God is pure. It had to be kind of singular because God is singular. You know? And so when we say God is holy, we're still not actually talking about his righteousness. When we say God is holy, we mean that he is wholly separate from everything else that is in existence. The creator is apart from the created. But again, what kind of character does that creator have? And that's where that component comes in. So when Paul says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices in view of God's mercy, he's saying, because God has done all these things for you, then you need to essentially live a certain kind of life for him because of what he's done, both in gratitude, but also to mirror and reflect the goodness that God has shown, the graciousness that God has shown. Uh, the way that he has uh, been uh, forgiving, the way that he has been long-suffering. And in fact, what we see, and this is kind of a preview of where we're going, is that the very next passage, Paul talks about spiritual gifts and how we use our gifts for the benefits of others in accordance to the measure that we've been given them. So that's an example of giving of yourself, serving others. It's not about you. Now you're, you're looking at how can I bless others? And then after that, he talks about love being sincere. Having a sincere kind of love uh, where you love other people well. The way God loved you well. His love was sincere. He didn't say, I love you, but then he wasn't willing to forgive you of your sins. He didn't say, I love you, but he was unwilling to take your pain and turn it into blessing. He has this sincere love where he actually wants the best for you. And for us to have that kind of love for others. And then in chapter 13, he talks about humbly submitting to authorities, just as Jesus humbly submitted to authorities while he was on this earth. In order, check this out, in order that we might be saved. Jesus lived a certain kind of life because he loved us and cared about us. So we should live a certain kind of life because we love others and care about others. And then finally, uh, there's this whole theme at the very end of the last three chapters of Romans. Accept one another as Christ has accepted you. 
think I actually wrote these down for you guys. I did. Accept one another as Christ has accepted you. And it's like he's, he's saying, okay, let's get really practical about what it means to live like Jesus. You serve others through your gifting. You love others sincerely. You're humble and submitted. And you accept others just the way Christ accepted us. And so this is where the rubber meets the road. And it's one thing to understand all the esoteric ideas of Romans 1 through 11. It's a very different thing to live them out in your life. Is that, is that true for you guys? Have you, I mean, what I find is that so often we get really excited about learning these ideas. If you're, if you've, if you're the kind of person that likes uh, to, to think about things and likes to explore things, and you're like, oh, this is really interesting, really cool, and you kind of feel like you're becoming more godly just hearing about them. And then you walk out the door and the first, you know, the first opportunity to live it out, crash and burn, right? And this is our experience so often. But what's cool about this is if you're a living sacrifice, check this out, if you're a living sacrifice, your primary role is simply to rest on the altar in the midst of the fire. The fire will do the work. You just have to stay on the altar. Which is what we've been talking about all along, right? You and I, we don't have the power to do the things that God has called us to do. The only thing that we can really choose to do is to daily step back into the presence of God and submit to what it is that He's working on in our lives. Right? Because it's the power of God to work in you to will and act according to His good purposes that passage we looked at in Philippians 2 a couple of weeks ago. And in fact, it's really interesting. Uh, the next thing he says is to be holy, but also pleasing to God. And there's three, I think, three passages that talk about uh, what it means to be pleasing to God, like what it is that's pleasing to God. Yeah, I've got them right here. Um, the first one is Hebrews 13. And check this out. Hebrews 13, it talks about being pleasing to God. This is the very end of the letter uh, to the Jewish Christians that were under persecution. I'll get there. And it says this. Hebrews 13, starting in verse 20. Now may the God of grace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with every good work for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Now look, the, the author of Hebrews loves to use commas and appositional phrases, lots of stuff. So let me cut to the core of what he's saying. May God work in you his will, and may he do it in you what is pleasing to him. Who's the one working in that sentence? God. God. And what's the result? You do his pleasing will. It's the same kind of context, the same theme that we're looking at in Romans 12. It's the same language. And he's just making it very clear that to, to, to um, do God's will, right, and to be pleasing to him is to have him work through you what he wants. Because there's no other way to get there. I'm going to look at Philippians 4.18 as well. You can turn if you want. Philippians 4.18 uses this language also. 
And there it says this. Uh, okay, so Paul is talking about um, how he received a gift from the Philippian church for the ministry of the gospel because he was in need of finances. He says, I've received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received the gift from Epaphroditus, the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. So here it is, this, this sacrificial giving. Paul, all he has to do is receive the gift. And all they had to do is just be faithful to give what they had. They, it wasn't that they had to muster this thing up, but it's for the service of others. So, the, so now we've got pleasing sacrifice is one where God does the work. A pleasing sacrifice is one where, where others, and particularly the gospel ministry, is the one that, thing that has priority. right? And then... In Romans 4, where we've already looked at, Romans 4.18, we've got another passage that talks about this pleasing God. And it says this. Uh, I think I wrote the passage down wrong. I wrote the passage down wrong. And now I don't remember where it is. Let's see here. I'll email it to you. <laughs> Pray for me. Uh, but the idea is, again, that the, the thing that's pleasing to God is what God works in you and through you. And so this isn't about, we've done all the theology, now try harder. That's not the message Paul's giving. It's not, we've, we've talked about grace, but now we're going back to law. That's not the message Paul's giving. And again, he makes it clear by he's not even commanding them to do this. He could. He could command the church to do these things. He has the authority to do that in a very strict sense. But he doesn't go that route. He says, I'm inviting you, I'm urging you, I'm challenging you, but I'm not commanding you. It's not about you being obedient to me or to a law. He's saying, look, there's this relational dynamic. God has done so much for you. Now in return... What you can do for him is just to surrender yourself to the altar. And here's the thing, guys. You're not going to die on the altar. Why not? Because you already died. And you already came back to life through Jesus Christ. So it can't kill you. It's amazing. The altar, surrendering your life, cannot kill you because you've already died and been brought back from the dead. And even if your physical body dies, you will not die because you've already died and already been brought back from the dead. And what that means is that you can continually stay there being refined, being transformed. We're going to talk about that word in a minute. By the flames of the altar, purifying you, making you more and more like Jesus. And so there is a sense in which all that's required is to wake up in the morning and say, God, I'm ready to get back on the altar. I'm ready to get back up there. I surrender to you. I submit to you. Do whatever you want to and through me. But what can so easily happen is in the passages that follow, we can see these as new laws. God said, righteousness comes apart from the law. Right? No one is righteous. No, not one. It's Romans 3. Uh, we've already talked about how the law comes. In Romans 7, the law comes and our flesh turns it into sin. And we kind of like we got freed from the law, right? There's freedom in Christ. 
And then when we get to Romans 12, 13, 14, 15, we're tempted to say, oh, this is the new law. This is the new. So if I just do these things, I'm in good shape. That's why these two verses are so important. Paul's saying, look, no, it's not about a new law. It's about the recognition that a surrendered life will manifest these things. And so the degree to which you manifest these things merely shows you, it's a mirror back to you, whether you're living a surrendered and submitted life or not. And your only job is to go to Jesus and say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I trust you, help me to trust you more. Lord, I struggle to surrender this, take it from me. Right? Until I am surrendered, until I am a submitted person. It all goes back to that same reality. This next verse says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. The Greek world of Paul's day believed that there was wickedness and righteousness, and they believed that the wickedness of man resided in his body, and the righteousness of man resided in his mind. And we see this at play, like you think about if you've ever studied Plato, or if you've ever, and there's other kind of uh, uh, philosophies that kind of say that the goal of life is to rid yourself of the, the physical things, because those are the lesser realities, and, and aspire to the, the esoteric, and the sublime, and the ethereal things of life, because they're they're the real things. Like Plato had this idea that, you know, there's all these trees around us, but there's a concept of a tree that's pure and true and good, and these are all just copies of that and, and not great copies. They're not perfect copies. Um, and so this kind of has come into Christianity for a lot of us. Some of us think that, oh, if I could, if I could just, in heaven I'll be rid of a body, right? And I'll be, I'll, I'll be able to put this sin behind me. Uh, of course, the Bible teaches that in heaven we get new bodies, so it's not, a, it's not a removal of the body. Like, we're actually not designed to be apart from the body. Uh, and it's not true either that our minds are so pure. I think some of us, we, we kind of fall to the, to the um, enlightenment concept that, you know, logic and reason are, are always good and true. And, you know, it's just not the case. Reason can fail you. Logic can fail you. Um, it's not that we don't use them, Right? But they're not, they're not perfect in, in, in a sense. They're not redeemed. And what we saw in Romans 1 was there is this kind of depraved mind. There's a kind of mind that, that rejects truth. Just like, just like those people who worship the false idols become like them. Right? It talks about that same dynamic in Romans 1. There are people who reject the living God for, for idols that are made of stone or that are animals or, you know... Like, not, not really God at all. And through that rejection of God, they're, they're kind of cast down a path of rebellion and sin. And so Paul knows that the mind is not inherently good either. And your reason is not inherently good either. Like, there's the whole of us has been affected and marred by sin. Not just our actions, but even our thinking. But he says, I don't want you to conform to the patterns of this world. And so you kind of have to stop and ask yourself, what is the pattern of this world? What are the values of 
our culture, our society, and not just ours, but across time and across space in the world. What are the values of, of the world that we live in? And, you know, I think a lot of them is this concept of you've got to pull your weight around here. You've got to earn your place in society. You need to, um, you know, if you want to be treated well, then you need to deserve it. You need to be deserving of it. Right? And this shows up in all sorts of ways. And, and I'm not saying that there's no place for these types of things I'm going to describe, but, you know, I think for a lot of us as kids, you know, if we, if we acted a certain way, then our parents were pleased with us and they were happy to be around us. Right? Or if we, if we could show up a certain way with our friends, then they would accept us and, and be with us. But if we didn't show up the way they wanted us to show up, maybe they made it very clear that they weren't happy to be with us. They, they didn't really want us around like that. And guys, I know, I understand, like, there's a, there's a place for, you know, correcting behavior and all those things. Um, but what does it say to us about who we are and our identity? I think it, it's very much a message of, of production, a message of achievement, a message of, of uh, earning and producing. And, you know, the, this world we live in, we want things fast, and we want them to be well done in a certain way. We, we, want, we want to prove our value, and we want others to prove their value to us. Um, we care a lot about appearances, right? You know, I think about how we show up on Sunday morning. And I, I think our church is, is a pretty, um, fairly unusual kind of collection of folks. And that, <laughs> that wasn't a joke, that, but, but yeah. <laughs> but I think that at large part, a lot of us show up pretty authentically here. But I think we've all been to churches and we, maybe we've, you know, experienced them very firsthand where you just can't show up. You can't show up as yourself at church. You've got to put on a mask. You've got to put on a persona to be acceptable at church. Um, and it reinforces this message that uh, basically grace is all well and good for your salvation, but it has no place in our relationships. Right? You know, we, we, we care about uh, outward appearances. We care about things. Like, I'm, I'm looking at my notes here because there's just so many different things. Reciprocity. Uh, if I give you something, you better give me something in return. And if you want something from me, you better be willing to give me something. Right? Like that's, that's how the world works. It's self-seeking. Um, we live in a consumeristic culture, meaning if I can't buy something from you or sell something to you, I'm not interested. You know, that's the culture. That's what it says. And I'm telling you, th this is not grace. This is the pattern of the world, and it is not the mind of Christ. Right? Because the mind of Christ says, actually, it doesn't matter one bit how good you are at something to determine your value and worth. In fact, I'm saying that you are infinitely valuable. This is Jesus talking. I'm saying you're infinitely valuable because I'm willing to die for you and I think you're pretty bad. Like, I think you're pretty much in the pits. The Bible says you were enemies of Christ when he died for you. It's not just like you were a bad friend. You were lobbing missiles at him and he's like, you know, okay, I'll die for you. This is the kind of God we have. The God who says that your value is 
based on what he has put in you, not what he can get out of you. That he made you in his own image. And of all the creation, he bestowed his image on you. He made you to look like him. That's how much he loves you and values you. And that he imparted that value to you. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. Simply by being born, you're worthy of being loved. Sonia shared the, uh, uh, was, is it Pinterest? Is it, what, what is the, Instagram. I don't know what these things are. She shared an Instagram post, and it was, um, was it AJ? KJ Ramsey. And KJ Ramsey is a woman who's disabled. And she said, those of us whose bodies are disabled, our bodies are like prophets declaring the value that I should, have, I should have written it down, right? Uh, but declaring this value that's not earned. Such a beautiful word image. But sometimes I, I, I've talked to people here over the years uh, in other places who say things like, you know, I just, I don't know if I belong here because I don't have anything to give. And first of all, I say, you have something to give. Like, that's not even in question. But... Sometimes what you give is the gift of other people serving you. How are we supposed to act like Jesus if there's no one who needs any help? How are we supposed to be gracious if there's no one who's sinning against us? How are we supposed to embody the, the, the grace and love and goodness of Christ if there's no one around who needs it? And sometimes, sometimes you come to a place in life and if you live long enough, you probably will come to a place in life where you cannot provide for someone else. You cannot even provide for yourself. And you are at the mercy, the mercy of another human being. And we say that person still has value. That person is still amazing. That person, if you could see their true essence of who they are, would knock your socks off, blow you away. The worst person in the world is, in that sense, amazing. And from God's perspective, we're all in that spot. None of us are self-sufficient. Another value of the world. So when God says, when Paul, God says through Paul, the Holy Spirit, do not conform to the pattern of this world, he's talking about the pattern of, of the world in relation to all the things that he's been talking about already. You know, these Bible, don't just pick a Bible verse and, and like apply it to everything. He's talking about, I say to you, church, that salvation is by grace, that you are received by God on the basis of His merit, not your own, and that you are loved beyond your, loved beyond your wildest hopes and expectations. And don't conform in contrast to that to the pattern of the world. Instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I suggest to you that what Paul primarily means by uh, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind is that you understand both how much you have received grace and that as a result, you understand how much grace you can give to others. If you were to imagine the person in the world right now that you are most angry at, frustrated with, fed up with, tired of, God did more for you and his grace to you than he's calling you to do for that person. Whatever they've done to you, 
they're still more deserving than you were before God. It doesn't mean you have to be their friend and like pretend they're not a creep. But to have compassion for them, to love them, right? The Bible's ethics. You can find the ethics of the scripture in all sorts of different religions, thought systems, philosophies. But there does seem to be one ethic that is unique to Christianity that you don't find in the books, the other books. Love your enemy. Why would you love your enemy? Because Jesus loved you when you were his enemy. And you wouldn't have anything if God didn't love his enemies. I told you earlier how Sonia said that you know, in Jesus, we've won the lottery, right? I told you that, right? That wasn't up here, okay. You've already won the lottery. Every single person who simply rests in the arms of Jesus wins the lottery. There's nothing greater you could receive. If you win the actual lottery, the, the, the money lottery, that's nothing compared to the lottery you've already won. Nothing compared to the prize you've already been given. And so, if God has done that for you, poured out so much grace, he's saying, look, share a little. Share a little. Share it freely. In fact, the more you give away, the more I'll give you. You don't have to hoard this stuff. Spread it out. And that looks like a lot of different things. Spreading it out looks like sharing the gospel, but spreading it out looks like using your spiritual gifts in church and loving with sincerity and submitting to government authorities and to accepting others as Christ has accepted you. Pass it out. Share the grace. Share the goodness. Share the joy. We see in the passage ahead, rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. That's a way of sharing grace. He says you need to be renewed I mean, transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then, then you'll be able to not only test, but approve what God's will is. What is God's will for your life? God wants you to be a surrendered person who showers the world with grace, just like Jesus surrendered himself and showered the world with grace. That's his will for your life. And honestly, if you get that part right, in a sense, all the other stuff doesn't matter. But in another sense, if you get it right, that stuff's probably going to go pretty well. But even if it doesn't, it doesn't matter because you've already won the lottery. And everything bad that comes, God's going to use for good anyway. Like, do you see how the system is stacked in your favor if you just give up? If you just give up, if you just surrender, all the stuff works out. It doesn't mean it won't be hard. It means that when it's hard, you've got all the resources you need, not only to get through it, but to see the beauty that comes on the other side. That relationship that you're in where that person is, is mean and harsh and, and um, you know, unkind and unfair, and, and it's been hard for you, right? And it hurts. And then finally, one day, you come to a place where you're like, okay, Lord, I'm going to just forgive the person even though they don't deserve it. Right? Like that 
that can happen, and that has happened. And then you say, okay, but what good's going to come out of it? And like, you just surrendered to the Lord. And you forgave like Jesus forgave. You just became more like Jesus. You were just conformed a little bit more to the image of your Savior. And that's going to stick with you for all eternity. You know, and it's fun. Like, there's plenty of those stories where, like, oh, this horrible, I lost my job, and I was destitute. And in that moment, like, this wonderful opportunity came, and all of a sudden, my life was fantastic. You're like, God works all things together for the good of those who love him. You're like, yeah, sure. But far more important is that do you look more like Jesus on the other side of that story? And if the story hadn't turned out that way, would you still have trusted the Lord? Because it doesn't always look so good on the outside like that kind of like victory story. But even if you don't have that victory story, you're still more than a conqueror. You're still a victor because you have Jesus. <laughs> like any death that comes just leads to more resurrection. Like this is the story. And that's why, that's why we're taking a whole, what, 40 plus minutes on two verses. Because if we don't get this part right, we're going to get the whole rest of the book wrong. And we're going to see this as just another to-do list. And Jesus, is not in, Jesus didn't save you for a to-do list. He saved you to be glorified like him, to look like him, to live your life like he did. And so dispense this grace and glory and majesty of God across the earth. That's God's will for your life. And, and hey, absolutely pray, Lord, what school do you want me to go to? Absolutely pray, Lord, what job do you want me to take? Absolutely pray, Lord, who do you want me to marry? Where do you want me to live? What do you want me to do? Uh, Lord, should I take a right or should I take a left? Absolutely pray that. And if he gives you your answer, God be praised. And if he doesn't, you still know his will for your life. Because if he doesn't tell you, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm putting this out there, if he doesn't tell you, it's because it doesn't matter if you know. If you needed to know, he would tell you. It doesn't matter. Sometimes God just says, do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. Uh, but how's your life with Jesus? <laughs> That's what matters. Are you a person of grace? And I don't ask you that so you can feel guilty and strive more. I'm asking you that so you might reflect and say, I need to surrender some more. I need to give up some more. Or to say, I don't know how to surrender. So, Lord, just rip it out of my hands if you have to. Like if you start praying, Lord, rip the things I'm holding onto out of my hands, your life is not going to be more pleasant, but it's going to be better. Lord, I don't want to trust you. Will you rip that out of my hands? Will you rip that out of my heart? That's going to be a painful answered prayer, but it's going to be a good answered prayer. So this is not about Paul saying, oh, if you want to have a happy life, do these things. And I'm, I'm sorry, but like, I don't like those sermons. But if you want to have a good life that honors the Lord, that you'll be excited to live, even when it's difficult, and not just excited to live, that's even framing it still is almost like there's this, I mean, I think there is a reward for living that way, but, but it's like if you want to have the kind of life that you can look at and say, you know, it wasn't perfect. But man, I got to know Jesus better. How amazing was that? That's what he's talking about. That's the kind of life you want. It's the kind of life I want. Guys, I am horrible at this. 
I'm not standing up here because I've, I've done it all perfectly. I'm standing up here because I've messed it up so many times and I'm, and I'm thinking, and I know you have too, but I'm like, hey, let's stop doing that. That's not fun. Let's do it the other way. Let's do it together. Let's walk together to the altar and let's jump on. And maybe we'll do it holding hands. Like, that's okay because maybe you're scared. Maybe I'm scared, but let's do it together. That's the invitation. Not a command, but I urge you, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to Him. And do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your, of your mind so that you may test and approve God's will, His, what is good, pleasing, and perfect will. And so here's a little, here's a little kind of twist at the end. So we're going to end with this. I think this is an image, it doesn't matter. When you live like that, you are showing the world that God's will is in fact good, pleasing, and perfect. You're not only testing it, but you're approving of it in such a way that other people can see it. I am convinced that we live in a world that has heard the gospel, not everyone, but many people have heard the gospel message from people that don't look like the gospel message. And they think, why would I want anything to do with that? But when I talk to folks who have come to faith recently, almost always, almost always, they describe a process of seeing the gospel lived out by someone close to them and the impact that had on them. And yes, they talk about the experience of God's transformative work in their life. They talk about you know, the truth that they heard, but it's almost always embodied in a relationship by a person whose mind has been, at least to the degree that it has been, transformed into the mind of Christ. No longer following the pattern of this world. So it's not about following the rules, but to let the way you live your life in obedience to Christ, and I mean very specifically, sacrificially living out grace. It will be a sacrifice, right? You've got to get on that altar. That's how to show that God's will is good, pleasing, and perfect. I'd like to give you guys two minutes just to reflect and ask the Lord, what do you want me to take away from today? What are you, what are you speaking to me right now? It might be something about an internal heart issue. It might be something about how you you're living this out or not living it out. It might be an encouragement that you're on the right track or it might be a correction of some kind. Just say, Lord, what do you want me to do with or what do you want me to know from or what is it you want to speak to me about this message, these, these verses in Romans 12, 1 and 2. And then just listen for a moment. And if you don't hear anything, it's totally fine. This is not, not another law you have to fulfill. Uh, but just listen and see if God speaks to you. And then we're going to close in song. You'll be dismissed. And when you leave this place, you're going to get, I, I bet, the, you're going to get, as soon as you see a person, a chance to live this out. That's the beauty of it, is that you're going to get direct feedback very quickly from your family, from your neighbor, from, from the boss who's calling you to come in early tomorrow, whatever it is. Uh, and let that be an opportunity to live this way. All right, take your two minutes.